You're listening to the Water Prairie Chronicles, a podcast that supports parents of children with disabilities by sharing the stories of individuals who have grown up with disabilities and the organizations available to help parents along the way. Stay connected with us by clicking the subscribe button and leave us a comment if you want to join in on the conversation. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the IEP process? In today's episode, Nicole Schlechter talks with Tonya about parenting a child with a disability. She also talks about how to start advocating for your child at school. Nicole is the owner of the IEP Parent Academy, and she has some tips for parents as they begin to navigate the IEP process, as well as some additional information for those seasoned parents who may need some pointers on how to advocate more effectively at school. She also answered some of our listeners' specific questions about advocating for the child. And now, here's Tonya's interview with Nicole. Our guest today is Nicole Schlechter. I wanted to invite Nicole to come on the podcast after I saw her Instagram page and how she's teaching parents about the IEP process. And I thought our listeners would like hearing some of the input of what she's doing on learning how to advocate for our children with disabilities in school. So Nicole, welcome to the Water Prairie Chronicles. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Sure, I've, I've been excited about, about this one. I get excited about all of our episodes, but I've really been excited about this one. And I've been telling uh, every, everyone that I talk to about, about meeting you and com- coming on. So. Oh, that's so funny. Thank you. That's very flattering. Oh, well, <laughs> you're welcome. So um, I thought I'd give you a chance. Do you want to just kind of introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so my name is Nicole Schlechter. Um, I am a mom of four. Um, in a former life, I was an educator, so I taught preschool. Um, I have um, two kids with an IEP. My oldest son is autistic with ADHD and anxiety. Um, he was recently also diagnosed with epilepsy, so we've been kind of oh, juggling wow. that. Um, and then my six-year-old daughter, who is sweet as can be, um, we think has dyslexia. So she has an IEP for a specific learning disability. Um, and we're just waiting until she's a little bit older to get that official diagnosis. Um, so I kind of got started in um, advocacy um, when my oldest son, he's almost 13 now, um, was in uh, second, third grade. Um, we had just like a really tough year where his body changed, um, to be totally honest. And um, his medis- medication stopped working. And then all at the same time, um, I felt like the school just didn't have any more patience to support his challenging behavior. Um, and at the time, we did not have a diagnosis because I was kind of always of the mind that like the label didn't really matter as long as he was going to get services. Um, I have a, a kind of different perspective on that now that we have a diagnosis um, because the school really did not believe that he was autistic. And they said that specifically to me in a meeting. Um, we changed placement. I felt like I didn't have a choice. I was like backed into a corner and I was a teacher. So like, I really felt like I understood special education. Um, and also it's kind of always been a special interest to me. So I was always wanting to learn about it anyways. Um, and I felt like if I felt overwhelmed and backed into a corner and bullied that other parents were probably feeling like that even more so because they didn't understand special education the way that I did. So I was like, whatever that job is, that's what I'm going to do from now on. That's, that's what my mission in life is, is to sit next to parents that have families like mine and make sure that their concerns are heard at the table and that the team is actually listening to them, that their concerns are reflected in the IEP um, and that parents are educated on what their rights are in special education. So nice. 
So because you're a parent and a, an advocate for your own child, but then you're also professionally working in the same type of field, I want to break the interview into two different parts. So yeah. first, I want to look at your role as a parent, because that's that's where the majority of our listeners are going to relate to you from, because they're 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 in the same the same boat. Some of our audience um, is comprised by professionals, teachers that are coming in, um, mm -hmm. and people who just want to understand the world of of disability and listening to these stories. But the majority in our target audience are those parents that have have young children right now. So in that situation, you you mentioned some of this already, and um, we may I just wanted to, to dig a little bit deeper and just just to clarify what we're saying here. What specific challenges? Now you have two children now that 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 you're looking at for actual IEP issues, but what challenges? Let's let's start with your son, the 13 year old son. Um, what challenges does he have right now? Um, so right now we're dealing with epilepsy, and so we've seen a lot of regression. Mason is um, like just brilliantly smart, just like he's such a cool kid, and he knows all kinds of. He has just so much like background knowledge about things that he's always really excelled academically. And I think that that's what's made it hard for educators to really see that he is disabled um, because he appears to be a typical kid in so many ways. Um, so epilepsy has been really hard. It's caused a lot of like academic regression for him. Um, he's struggling with like processing speed and working memory right now. Um, even in conversation, it takes him a really long time to like express himself. So that's been really hard. Um, and then as a result of being autistic during a pandemic, um, social skills have just taken a backseat. So he has only been in middle school during a pandemic with a mask on. So the mask before was there to help him um, stay safe, right? But now, even though he can take it off at school, he doesn't because now it's a um, like almost like a comfort for him that he doesn't have to put himself out there socially. And he wants to be social. He wants friends and he wants to do social things and he feels really lonely, but he really struggles with the anxiety of, you know, how to have a conversation and when, when do you initiate a conversation and, um, you know, how do you make a friend? What does it mean to have a friendship? Um, so those are the kind of things that that we're working on right now. Um, uh, social skills have kind of taken a backseat for a couple of years just because it's hard to be social during a pandemic with social distancing and masks and things like remote learning. Um, and I feel like that was kind of like a weight off his shoulders as far as school, which was great for him academically. He did so wonderfully during remote learning. Um, but socially, it's really left him behind everybody else even further than he was before. Um, and it's really heartbreaking as a parent to see your kid want to be social and dry their tears when they're crying because they go to school and nobody talks to them all day. Um, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, I go to school and I say, we have to do something about this. Um, but it, he's at an age where like, you can't force social engagement. And so it's just, it's hard to deal with as a parent. It's, it's very hard. That's now having two two children who are older now. Those mm -hmm. those were tough years. It's mm -hmm. um it, it, the middle school years. You know the kids are beginning to pull away and make their own choices and right. and it brings on like a lot of the people that I've interviewed when the bullying started for them it was middle school because that's when you're you're recognizing that it's almost like a survival of the fittest in some ways. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so no matter who your child is, it's a tough time adding to that a pandemic and, and other issues that might separate them a little bit already to make mm-hmm. that social adjustment harder. So I, I, I can understand that that, that has to be a really tough one. And I, I can remember my, my kids may, may not appreciate me saying this, but I can remember those tears, um, you know, yeah. even, even, even in other situations for that, just, it was, it was that 13, 14 range, even actually 12 to 14 range that was just socially a hard time. And, you know, and um, we had that conversation with him, my husband and I, like, you know, middle school was awful. Like yeah. it was not fun for any of us, but when you're, when you're the 13 year old going through that, it's hard to think, oh, everybody else feels this oh, way. Oh, it, it isn't the same. It's it, for you. This, no, this is what you experience. Hard. It's hard to like, you know, and also because he's autistic, it's really hard to see other people's perspectives. Right. So like that has also, you know, that rigid thinking and being in your own world has really impacted him um, socially too. And then adding on this additional diagnosis of epilepsy, he's had two seizures at school during class. Um, You know, one of them, he had to leave in an ambulance. Like it's, you know, it's embarrassing and it makes you feel even more isolated than you already felt. So it's been a really tough year for him, but um, we worked really hard. He had to, he was on swim team before too. Um, and obviously we can't do swim team now anymore because of seizures. Um, so we've been working really hard to like find other activities for him. Right. So he's been doing, um, he's been taking our dog to dog training. Oh, and cool. so for him, it's really cool because there's no pressure to be social. It's just him and our dog. Right. But also, um, he has like a really big interest in animals and thinks he might want to pursue a career like that. So mm-hmm. we've used it as like a social opportunity, unsocial social opportunity, right. you know, an extracurricular thing to look forward to, but also it's, um, helped him like figure out, you know, if this is something that he really does want to pursue. So right. I think sometimes as a, as a parent of a child with a disability, um, you have to do some of that outside the box thinking and like, you know, how can we reach this goal of like having fun and doing extracurricular yep. things without all of the pressure, you know, and not, not necessarily doing team sports or whatever that looks like. Um, I think you get really good at like rolling with the punches and thinking outside the boxes and finding creative ways to reach whatever goal you need at the time. So are there now middle school, it doesn't happen as often as high school, but is there a club or any type that has like your future kids that are going to go into animal care of some sort? Um, or even in your community? Yeah, so there's, it's COVID. So there's nothing, there's no social groups. (laughs) There's not a lot of clubs. Um, The clubs that they have like, you know, put together at school are mostly sports clubs. Um, There's really nothing else that's going on. Um, We did recently find like a a social group for middle school boys. um, That's like an unsocial group. It's just them, them going to hang out, like no pressure. We're not teaching social skills, things like that. But um, so we've been one, so we're, tr- we're trialing that, but like, um, I, I, with everything that's going on is, uh, like in his life, um, I just didn't, I'm trying really hard not to put pressure on, um, being social if right. that's not where he's comfortable right now. Um, you know, like encourage him, uh, you know, like, you know, what can, and we do a lot of role playing, right? Like if somebody says hi to you in the hallway or smiles at you in the hallway, like, you know, what do you think you should be a response to that? Like, right. if you're comfortable, because I also never want to like put him in a position where he's not comfortable 
or doesn't feel like this is something he even wants to do. Like if he didn't want friends, I, you know, would have to accept that, but I do know he wants friends. So I do my best to like encourage that and do that role play and things like that. But unfortunately, because of COVID, they're just like very limited opportunities to right. do that. With the epilepsy. So what's the, the expectation there will like have they given you an idea of how long it'll take to find the proper balance of medication so that that is is easier to control well that is the million dollar question my friend because we have no idea um we think that mason has like um possibly a rare kind of epilepsy that has been proven really hard to treat um he started out having focal seizures and actually um, we figured out that he's actually been having seizures for years and we didn't know it because they don't present like typical seizures. So he has typical focal seizures where he like stares off into space, but then he also has these seizures where he's, um, almost, it almost seems like he's having a panic attack and he's, you know, walking around, he's intermittently responsive. Um, okay. he's crying hysterically and they're seizures. So for years we thought he was having night terrors. And it turns out that we think that those were probably seizures and just okay. we didn't know. Um, and then he had a few febrile seizures when he was younger that really just didn't fit the bill of febrile seizures. But I was a young first time mom and he was autistic and we had all this other stuff going on and it wasn't like, um, it wasn't low hanging fruit to be totally right. honest with you. So right. I didn't pursue it. His EEG was normal. So I didn't have any reason to, yep be concerned until August of last year. Um, so he has these focal seizures and then he has these panic attack looking seizures. Um, he's also had seizures where he's been laughing, which is really, really rare. Um, he has seizures where um, they start focal and then they turn into convulsive seizures. Those are the really big ones. Yeah. He's had a couple of those that have lasted, you know, almost 20 minutes, which is really scary. Wow. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the hard part. We, um, in December, we were in the hospital for a week um, for an EEG and he was having seizures every day or every two days at that point. And we went five days without a seizure at the hospital. Um, we went home and then he had um, a 16 minute seizure that night. Um, and we ended up back in the emergency room. So we're actually in two weeks, we go back to the hospital. We plan to stay there for a week um they're going to do all kinds of testing um try and trigger a seizure things like that right. so um hopefully we get answers there but i feel like i've kind of had to um just like accept that like we might never have all of the answers and that we'll just have to do our best to treat the symptoms so he's he's on a medication now that we think is working um he went a month without a seizure which is amazing he okay. just had one um, he just had one on Friday again. So oh. like, you know, he went um, a month without a seizure. So that's wonderful. Um, or no, it was Sunday, but um, that's great. Um, so we hope this medication is working. Um, but, you know, it's a million dollar question on, you know, what, what the prognosis right. is and what that looks like. Does one he, day at a time over here. <laughs> does he recognize what's happening when it happens? So with the ones that look like panic attacks, he's aware when it's happening. So um, during those, he it's it's honestly a blessing, but he's been able to like call my name okay. and you know, mom ears. I'll be like in the other side of the house and I like come running because I know 
something's going on. Um, and then I can like sit with him and time it and things like that. Right. Um, but the ones that are like pure focal seizures, he's not aware of. Um, he doesn't know before they happen. We haven't identified any triggers. Um, we've ruled out things that we thought might be triggers like blood sugar or physical activity. Mm -hmm. um, those don't seem to be a trigger, even though they've, you know, been related to some of his bigger seizures. Um, we've ruled them out. So um, we've ruled out heart problems. We thought that that might be a trigger. Um, we're ruling out autoimmune disorders. So yeah, it's, I mean, I feel like we've done a million different things to try and figure <laughs> yeah. out what's going on. So eventually we've got to get there, right? I feel like um, maybe I just wasn't, this sounds, this sounds really bad, but like when he started having seizures in August and um, like we became aware that he was actually having them and we think he had had them for a long period of time. Um, I, I wasn't super concerned about it. Like, I know that sounds weird, but like, I was like, well, you know, people live with epilepsy. I actually have epilepsy. Um, and they never figured out why I ever had seizures and I just kind of grew out of them. Um, and so I just kind of felt like, okay, like, you know, we're just going to like keep going. Right. So he stayed on swim team and we took precautions and because he was having focal seizures, not, you know, like tonic clonic, you know, convulsive seizures. We were just, everybody's aware. Everybody keeps an extra eye on Mason. Um, but he had three seizures in the pool. And so then oh, I was no. like, okay, yeah. this is the problem. Like we can't do this. Cause I also am like a firm believer that like, just because you have a disability doesn't mean you don't deserve to, to have a life, right? right. To like live right. your life. And swimming was this place where he could be social, but be individual. Mm -hmm. And so it was like this individual team sport that was just such a good place for him. Um, plus he just really loves sensory wise. He just loves the pool. Right. He feels so good in the pool. Um, and so I just didn't want to take it away from him. Like he had so few things that he loved, but um, it's on our radar to hopefully be able to go back to, we just don't have like an insight right now. So right. I'm hoping that this, this big test that we do gives us like all, all the answers. Right. And then we can move forward and go back to living life. But right now everything's just kind of on a standstill. So being a parent's fun, isn't it? <laughs> it's <like> <laughs> it's hard. Nobody tells you how hard no. it is. And you have four. So you're having, I mean, I only have two and it wasn't hard enough juggling between them. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't imagine not having four kids, though. My husband and I talk about that all the time. Like, what would we do with ourselves if yeah. there weren't four of them? <laughs> Hyper-focus hyper, hyper on one. <laughs> instead exactly. Of one. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, the, so the epilepsy is what's going on right now. So, But he has some other issues that, that you've mentioned there. When did you first know anything was going on with Mason? Um, he was 18 months old, and um, he was... It, it was like, I don't know, like a light switch flipped on him. And he, um, he was always hyper, like always, but, um, he like went from like being impulsive and hyper, which like impulsive and hyper at 18 months or a year old seems weird to say, but like, he just always was, but he was my only baby. So like, didn't know right. anything different at 18 months. He was like, throwing tantrums like and tantrums don't even describe it and when i would say that to the doctor they'd be like oh you know he's a toddler like right. toddlers <laughs> tantrums right but he also had this like loss of skill where remember mason's like brilliantly smart so he was like at 12 months old counting to 20 and like 
knew his alphabet. He's so smart. Right. And then all of a sudden at 18 months, he didn't know those things anymore. Oh, he like, couldn't okay. remember them. He went from like speaking like this again, sounds weird at 18 months old. He was speaking like five to six word phrase sentences, wow. like full sentences. And then all of a sudden it was like one or two words at a time. And okay. words were like, had lost the end of the, like the end sound of the word and things like that. As a typical parent, I feel like maybe you wouldn't have really been like super concerned about those things, but because I had worked with kids my whole life and again, special education and disability has always been a special interest for me. I was like, okay, this is weird. I did not think he was autistic. I'll be totally honest mm. with you. Did not even cross my mind because what I understood about autism was not what I was seeing in my kid. So I didn't think that's what was going on. Um, so at three, he, um, we got an IEP. I took him to school and we did like an evaluation um, and he got an IEP and um, I knew that like there was something going on with him, but I was always convinced that like he was just going to catch up. Right. Like, right. I, again, was never like hung up on the label. So over the course of years, when he was like in and out of PHP programs at six years old and getting suspended from school in first grade, we would go to all these doctors because I was trying to do what I knew how to do at the time. Um, but I just didn't understand ADHD and I didn't understand autism and um, he didn't fit the bill for what I knew about those two things. So that couldn't be it. Right. Right. So when the doctor told me that he had ADHD at five years old, I was like, yeah, okay, I don't see it. I don't believe you. So yeah. like we never pursued that diagnosis. At one point they diagnosed him with bipolar disorder. And I was like, no, that's absolutely not the case. Don't believe it. So I never shared those diagnoses with the school, but when he was about eight years old, a friend of mine said, oh, well, he's autistic, right? And I was like, no, he's not autistic. But then I was like, well, maybe he is. Like, maybe, maybe he is. And I started like doing a little digging and learning a little bit more. And um, we pursued formal diagnosis at that time because um, he was aging out of that IEP category of uh, eligibility category of developmental delay. Right. So you can't have it past the age of nine. So I was like, well, we have to have a diagnosis. He, he really needs services, right? So we got an autism diagnosis at that time, um, ADHD and anxiety diagnosis. He was also diagnosed with um, DMDD, but again, I just didn't agree to agree with that. Um, I firmly do not think he has a mood disorder. And if you knew him now, there's no way anybody would think that of him because that isn't what's happening. Um, what was happening is that he had undiagnosed autism and nobody was treating it like it was autism. So right. he was having all this explosive behavior because we were treating behavior and we weren't treating the problem that came or that was causing that behavior. Right. Um, so yeah. when I went to school with that diagnosis, they were like, well, we we really are surprised with this diagnosis. We don't see autism at all. And I was like, that's fine. You are not a doctor. Right. <laughs> um, you know, like that's fine. And what's funny about that is that um, there was a, there was one special education administrator that was in that meeting that just literally made my life a living hell. Um, and he was just, he was horrible to me the way he treated me. He, he literally like, you know, slammed his fists on the desk at one point and said, 
we're not leaving this room until you sign this paper. And I knew that that was not something that was required of me, that he couldn't require that. But he was just so mean and he was just such a bully. That's like the best way to describe him is that he was just a bully. And I was at a part in my parenting where I just didn't understand Mason. And I also still felt like a lot of this behavior was my fault. Like if I was a better parent, if I was harder on him, maybe I should be more strict. And, you know, if I did a better job, he wouldn't have these problems. Right. So like, right. I let that intimidate me a lot. Um, and what's really funny is that years later we had a reevaluation and this administrator gets bumped up to the middle school and I'm like, oh God, here we go again. <laughs> right. However, they found him eligible under autism as the primary eligibility category. And so I was like, oh, isn't that funny that you didn't think he had autism four years ago? <laughs> and now you think that's the primary reason for eligibility? And he was like silent. But I, you know, I wasn't going to let it slide. Like, I'm a different parent now than I was then. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, I think um, that that's, that's one of the things that as our kids grow, we're learning too on mm -hmm. and and the advocacy skills hopefully are better by high school than they were when they were in preschool um, as we go through but sadly it'd be nice if we had those skills when they enter preschool to be able to know yeah, well that's you know that's my hope is that i love when i get to talk to parents and connect with parents who have really young kids because i tell them you're not supposed to know it all you're supposed to trust that the school's going to do everything that they're supposed to do for your child, right. but it doesn't happen. And so here's all the things that you need to know now rather than later. Cause I didn't right. know them. Like I, had I known them in preschool, life would be so different, but I didn't know. And so I, I love talking to parents who are, have really young kids and are trying to do better than I did. Cause I was very complacent and I just trusted everybody and, everybody was so nice to me because it wasn't like there was a whole lot of fighting, right? Like until that, that thing happened in second and third grade, there was no fighting. I got along with everybody. Like I knew their kids' mm -hmm. names. I knew what they were doing on the weekends. I was complacent and I wished I hadn't been. I wished that I, I knew what I knew know now because things would be so different. Well, and that's, um, I know when, when I interviewed my son, that was one of the things that he and I talked about that by seventh grade, I had to agree with him when he came to me and said, will, will, will you back me up from here on? Because right. my, my thought always was, you know, the, the, the school knows what they're doing. These are professionals. They, they, they know what they're doing. And there mm -hmm. must be something that he's done that's aggravated that adult. And mm -hmm. unfairly for years, I made him be the one that had to meet the adult on the adult's terms. And that's, a, that's unfair to a young child because the adult should be coming to them as well. And, yeah. um, and so I don't know how many times I made him apologize or do all these different things that were so, so unfair to him, <laughs> but looking back on I it, know. they were at the time. I didn't know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still assuming that everything's fine. And it actually took the, the IEP team meeting that we went to in seventh grade for him when I asked for executive functioning skills to be evaluated and they did a behavioral analysis instead. And what they concluded was he didn't have behavior issues. And that was where it went. Um, never addressed executive functioning skills, which is what he needed at the time. So, right. um, so it, 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 and, and that, that was where the light bulb really went off for me was that no, they don't necessarily know what they're talking about. And I do know more than they do about what my son needs, but it took how many years? <laughs> right. Well, that light bulb moment moment for me was in third grade. Um, they suspended Mason and he, they were suspending him like every day for something. 
Um, and I knew what they were doing because they were trying to like force placement change. Um, and so I was doing everything that I could to prevent that from happening. So I didn't think that was in his best interest. Um, but I remember sitting in a meeting for them and them saying, well, we're going to suspend him because he did something like throw a pencil or something. And it wasn't anywhere near the severity of other things that he had done. Cause like, I don't want to sugarcoat that. I, I felt for those teachers because he was a very challenging child at that point in time. It, you know, I, I would never sugarcoat that. He, he is not without blame here. Right. <laughs> but I sat in a meeting and I said, okay, so we're going to suspend him again. And what will he learn from that? Well, he'll learn not to do it again. And they said, but we just had a behavior intervention plan meeting to determine that he has a skill deficit, that he doesn't know how to behave a different way. So how is suspending him teaching right. him to not do it again? And they said, well, he'll learn his lesson. And I said, but he has a skill deficit. It's not a performance deficit. He's not choosing that behavior. He doesn't have a way to behave in a different way. And they all stood there and looked at me silently like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I, like, it was one of those things where I was like processing the thoughts in my mind because I was like, well, wait, that doesn't make sense. Like, why, why are we going to punish him for his disability? Like, I don't understand this. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they didn't understand either. And so I would say, okay, so like, is, does the behavior plan not work? Oh, no, no, no. The behavior plan's great. And I was like, well, if the behavior plan works, then why do we need suspension? Right. Right. If the behavior plan is written effectively and it's working, why are we still seeing this behavior and why do we need these kind of forced consequences? So it was like an eye opening moment for me about how the school treated him, how they were focused just on that behavior. Um, but also on how I treated that behavior too, because like you, I was, you know, providing consequences and trying to be strict with oh. him and firm with him. And I was battling him constantly because you're, you're going to do things my way. Right. Cause that's, how, you know, that's how you're supposed to parent. Right. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait, I'm doing the same thing. I'm yep. punishing him for something maybe he can't control. Um, so it was like an eye opening moment for me and with for myself as a parent but also for the school too so yeah yeah and and and, and it's i i'm sure a lot of our listeners are facing the same thing and it's um and and that frustration unless you've been there it's hard to understand that frustration and mm -hmm. and even at yourself too because because you you, you look back and it's like why well, should have done all this differently i appreciate you sharing that i know um and and i know every story is different every i mean you have four every single child is different in what they need yeah. And, um, and some have official IEPs where they have accommodations that are there. Some don't have the IEP, but they still need some type of accommodation. And as parents, that's kind of what our role is, is to help support them in the matter that they need. Um, but Mason's story is, is an interesting one. You, you really have had a lot uh, with, with your first teaching you a lot of skills. Yes, right? Like you broke me in, yeah, for sure. <laughs> right. Well, I'm hoping some of this, um, Maybe, maybe it's, I mean, middle school, you have a lot of growth happening then. So maybe some mm -hmm. of this with epilepsy too, will, will resolve with some of the growth that he's going to be going through now. I, I really hope so. I, I think that that's kind of our wild card right now is epilepsy. But what I have learned about Mason across the years is that I should never estimate what I think he's capable of doing. Cause he always proves me wrong. Like some things are hard for him that I don't expect, but then all of a sudden he'll blow me away with what he's 
willing to try new things and go new places and have a conversation with somebody new. Like he's, he's always surprising me. So I always tell parents when they first get a diagnosis that the diagnosis is scary, right? But the diagnosis is not the destination. Like I never in a million years, when we were going through all that stuff, when he was younger, never thought that he would be this great kid. I was afraid of what was, what middle school was going to be. Um, and you know, we got him the right services and the right support. And I started doing the right things at home and I make mistakes all the time. But I think that like, you know, he's done a really good job. He worked so hard to get where he is. I'm just so proud of him. So when the life skills that he's learning through mm-hmm. these early challenges are going to make him even stronger as a, as a man. It's, yep, I mean, I, I'm, I'm convinced that all of our kids that have these different challenges that they have at, at such young ages, they find a strength through that to, mm-hmm. to who, who they become later. And I, I think they're going to make a big impact on the world because of it. It's um, I'm, I'm always excited when I, when I meet a kid who is, who is battling a little bit, but you can see there's a spark there and yeah. And they, yeah, they he's such a cool kid. Yeah. I, 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 I would like to meet him. He, he seems like, like, like a really cool kid. That's, um, and, and, and the fact that, that yes, your mom and yet, yes, you love him, but, but you have an, an admiration for him too. So I can, I can see you, you have a good connection with him, which is nice. We do. We're very close. Yeah. So let's change gears here a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So you have been referred to as the IEP mom and yes. Um, yes. your official website is not the IEP mom. It's it's Nicole Schlechter, IEP mom. What is the? It's NicoleSchlechter.com. Yeah. So com. Okay. <laughs> the reason that I added on that IEP mom, and actually if you go to the IEPmom.com, you'll get redirected to my website. Okay. Um, because Schlechter is so hard to spell. <laughs> so. I tried to find something that was like simple and easy for people to remember that would get redirected. So I've just kind of tagged it on there. So if, if you go to the IEPmom.com, that, that is you as well? Yep, that's okay. me. I've seen your website and your YouTube channel, and I love the information that you're giving to your clients and offering for the site visitors. But mm-hmm. I want to know, how did you become the IEP mom? So, um, I, well, I told you a little bit about my backstory initially where I went through, you know, trauma at the IEP table and I hate calling it that, but, um, it was really traumatic as a parent, because I will tell you that there were people on his IEP team that, um, wanted to speak up for him and wanted to speak up for me and were not able to do so because they have a job to do. Um, and unfortunately that happens a lot of times with teachers, teachers want to advocate for kids, but they also have bills to pay. So they sit silently at the table. Um, and I don't think I understood that at the time. I was really angry at a lot of them because they weren't speaking up for him. Um, but it was very traumatic for me. And so I just wanted to make sure that other parents didn't feel the way that I felt at the table. Um, and I do things differently than I think a lot of other advocates do, um, I, I genuinely hope that one day there is no need for me to ever be an advocate again. Um, as much as I love this, I really want parents to be educated and feel confident in what they know about their child um, and what they know about special education so that they can make good decisions for their child at the IEP table. I want, I want to educate parents so that when they come across a sticky situation or there's hard feelings at the table, they know how to like approach that. Um, I, I think I know that as a parent prior to doing this, uh, well, even now, like I'm, I'm an advocate who hires an advocate to work with me for my kids because 
I'm emotional when it comes to my own children. And right. so even though I know special education and I understand the law, um, I second guess myself and, you know, am I being unreasonable and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And so it's nice to have an advocate come and do the feeling hurting for you. If, if that's right. what needs to be done, <laughs> um, because you second guess yourself as a parent and like, um, you shouldn't be doing that. And I work on that myself. Um, but it's a hard thing as a parent to separate that and just look at it as, as business, but really that's what IEP meetings are is it's just the business of making sure your child has an appropriate education. So, um, so that's, that's how you started. What is mm -hmm. the IEP parent Academy? So IEP parent Academy is this like brainchild that I had. I had this idea that I was going to put together a course for parents that was going to be just short to the point. Um, it's a four week course, but I'm actually in the, in the process of changing it up so that it's like kind of a, um, download once and go at your own pace sort of thing, rather than it being in weeks, um, you know, committing to four weeks. Cause as a parent, that's really hard. Um, so it's a four week course right now that just helps parents understand special education. Um, but it's in like real people language. So I give you all of those acronyms and I explain to them to you. I tell you what the timelines are that you need to know. We talk about um, specifics like goal writing and what accommodations you need to look for. Um, I've detailed it out so that we talk about what the problem might be and what accommodation would go with that. Oh, nice. Um, I talk about what questions you should be asking related service providers. Um, we talk about like red flags in special education. Um, we talk about how to collect data. Um, we talk about um, uh, prop like dispute resolution. But um, when you look up dispute resolution and your pr uh, procedural safeguards, it's super confusing, right? So we talk yeah. about how to diffuse angry IEP meetings and follow your procedural safeguards in like real people language because I understand special education and I know what an eligibility category is or an ARD meeting or a domain meeting. I know what all of those things are, but a typical parent is not gonna know those things. And so I just break it all down for them um, so that everybody kind of understands. Um, previously, IEP Parent Academy also included four hours of group coaching. So there is a Facebook group and I went live and answered all these questions. I'm playing around with what that's going to look like in the future. It will still include some sort of group coaching. Um, I just don't know how to make that work when it's not a four-week course. So stay tuned. Right. Um, it's coming. I'm figuring that part of it out. Um, but yeah, that's the gist of IEP Parent Academy. It's just a place to go to learn about special education um, in not confusing words. <laughs> and how so. often do you offer that? So I offered it three times last year. It sold out every single time. And my goal is to open it up the last week of April again this year. So Okay. So this, guys... is, this is airing yeah. on April 1st. So mm -hmm. if you're listening to this, when it first airs, you have time to sign up. Yeah, um, there's a waiting list on the website and you can go ahead and snag your spot on the waiting list because people on the waiting list um, will be the first ones notified. Um, I usually okay. open it up for just 20 people at a time. Um, and like I said, it has sold out every time. The last time that I ran it, it actually sold out in just a week. Um, okay. And I opened it up two weeks ahead of time. So it sells out pretty quickly. So. Okay, so we'll we'll put the link to that in the show, the show notes on the YouTube channel. But if you're listening to the audio, 
if you go to the website at waterprairie.com under episode 10, we'll have all the links there for you too. Or you, or you can just go straight to the IEPmom.com. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or you can go to um, the IEPparentacademy.com. Okay, so there. so we, we have lot, lots of ways to get there. <laughs> you yeah. just need to find it. <laughs> yep. All right, so, um, so we have the IEP Parent Academy. What other types of services do you offer? Yeah, so up on my website, there's a couple digital downloads that are really helpful. There's an IEP binder organizer um, that includes a video of like how to use it. It is um, editable so that you can use it um, on your computer if you're a tech person, which okay. I am not. Or you can print it out and add it to a binder and I kind of go through how to organize it and things like that. But that binder organizer is more than just an organizer. Um, it includes, you know, like different ways to separate and keep your files organized, obviously. But it also has a lot of like prompts and questions you should be asking as okay. a parent. Like these are what my goals are. Here's what my concerns are. Um, it helps you keep track of like calendar dates and things like that. The best part about it is because I really love talking about behavior and I'm a behavior mom. Um, I added in there a couple pages for parents to use as behavior communication logs. And so those are just ways for you to document what happened. So when your school calls you and they're like, hey, you've got to come pick up Joey because Joey threw a pencil across the room and they tell you what happened, I promise you they're most likely telling you about throwing the pencil, right? About what Joey did. But they're not telling you what the antecedent is, what the environment is, who else was involved, what the task was in the classroom, um, what the expectation was. So that behavior communication log helps you ask the right questions so that you have documentation of it. And then just like a little pointer here, if you're going to collect data or um, document something in your own notes, put it in an email and send it back to the school and just say, per our conversation, here's what I understood so that there's documentation on both sides. Um, it is much better to have way too much documentation than to regret not having it when you need it down the road. So. Good, 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 good advice. I, I learned that along the way myself and mm -hmm. would follow up everything um, with, with, with copies of it, just, just, just so that I knew we were always on the same page. Yep. So, um, and then, um, so we talked about the website. Is that the best way for clients to get in touch with you? Yeah, either that or social media. I tend to hang out a lot on TikTok. It's my favorite place to be right now, but I'm on Instagram and Facebook too. Um, and so you can contact me there also. Okay, and we'll put all those links in the show notes for this one too, so that you can, can check on that. Awesome. Um, all right, so let's see, I'm looking at my notes here to see where we are. All right, so our target audience is specifically parents with children who have disabilities and our listeners have, are gonna have children with IEPs for all different types of reasons. Um, and they're going to be coming in from different states and different types of schooling too. So we can't really give a blanket statement of answers of, of what we're going to do. But I did want to talk about some specific situations that some of our listeners have submitted to me to ask you. And um, and if I get to one that, that's not appropriate, then feel, feel free to, to say no on it. <laughs> but um, but wanting to give some ideas of, um, of, of what they might be able to do coming through there. And... Um, but before I get to those questions, I wanted to talk about basically how do we advocate for our children? How do we start advocating for our children in school? And so, yeah. um, so I'm going to leave that that open to you. How how would you um, get us started with that and some advice that you might give to us? 
So whether you have an IEP or not, um, maybe you have a 504 plan, um, like writing everything down and documenting it is honestly one of the best ways that you can advocate for your child. Um, if you have a child who is receiving special education services, the best way of kind of learning what your rights are is by reading your procedural safeguards. The school has to give those to you at least once a year. If not at every meeting, they really should be giving them to you or at least offering them to you. Um, for years, I did not read them. And I you know, thought, oh, it's fine. I don't need to know that. But there's some important information in there. So that's a great place to start. Your State Board of Education website is going to have a lot of information also. Um, but the biggest thing that I would tell parents is that um, specifically IEP parents, that you have to be um, confident that you are an equal member of the IEP team. So what that means is that everybody at that IEP team comes in as an expert in their field, right? Like the speech therapist is there because they understand speech therapy. The occupational therapist is there because they know about fine motor skills and sensory needs. You are there because you know about your child. You're the most consistent member of the IEP team, and it can be really easy to feel intimidated or overwhelmed or confused, but ask all of the questions. And if you get to the end of the meeting and they say, well, we don't have any more time and you still have questions, ask them to reschedule the meeting. Um, it might seem like you're annoying everybody and that's okay. Um, it's the business of making sure your child has an appropriate education, so you deserve to have all of your questions answered. Um, asking for a draft copy of the IEP is hugely helpful for you prior to a meeting um, because it helps you kind of absorb things before you go into that meeting. Most of the time you go to an IEP meeting and they're like shooting information at you like rapid fire style, right? So having that draft to be able to like write down your questions and read it over ahead of time can be really helpful for you to feel prepared. So when it comes time to asking the hard questions or asking for a new service or asking why we're not doing this thing, you've kind of already read what the, the team's agreeing to do in the first place um, and you're able to add your input. On, on the draft copy, I near the end of my son's mm -hmm. high school, I was told that they're not supposed to have a draft ahead of time, that it has to be written during the meeting. Yeah, so this is kind of like a hot topic in special education. Um, it is not federal law that they have to provide you a draft, draft copy. Um, in certain states, like I'm in Illinois, it's actually the law that they have to provide you draft copies of all documents that will be discussed three days prior to the meeting. So there are other states like that. So again, check your state to see right. what the regulations are there. Schools are sometimes afraid of providing a draft copy because it is supposed to be um, implemented or written by the entire team, which includes the parents. Right. So by writing the draft copy ahead of time, they say that that would be considered what's called predetermination. So they're predetermining what is going to be in the IEP by providing you the draft copy. Um, some states are like really big sticklers about that they're absolutely not going to provide you a draft copy. So I always tell those states that if you're not going to provide me a draft copy, and you're not going to give me ample opportunity to provide meaningful participation, because that's also your right by federal law, you're allowed meaningful participation. And in order for me to be a meaningful participant, I have to read everything ahead of time, because I can't absorb everything at the meeting. 
So that's what I always tell people. If you're not going to provide me the draft copy and allow me an opportunity to provide meaningful participation, then we will just sit in the meeting while you write the IEP. I will take it home and then we're going to have to have another meeting because okay. I'm not going to be put on the spot. You know, it's even as an advocate, um, I understand special education, so I can read through an IEP pretty quickly and figure out like what you know, what needs to change and things like that. But as an advocate, I want to make sure that the parent understands too. So even as an advocate, I tell tell the team, if you're not going to give us a draft copy, you should be prepared that we're going to have a really long meeting or we're going to have to reschedule because really that is best practice. If we want parents to be equal IEP team members, they deserve the same information that everybody else has because they might tell you that they're not writing IEPs prior to the meeting, but you know <laughs> there's not enough time in the day for a you know a teacher to get all of that figured out in their head there in the in the meeting. And honestly, do we really want them to like hurry up and rush through writing IEP right. goals in the moment? No, we want them to take their time. So it is kind of a hot topic for some states, but Again, that's where you have to just be really confident in that, like, this is what I need in order to provide my meaningful participation. If they can't provide a draft copy, if they're in a state like mine, um, would it be appropriate to ask for the notes that are going to be used or for their recommendations beforehand? So sometimes the, um, states will do that. And just so that you know, it is actually not a law. Unless things have changed, it's not a law in any state that I know of that they cannot provide you a draft copy. Okay. So if they're telling you that, it's probably because that's the way that they do things. Okay. It's not necessarily a policy. And it, like again, unless things have changed, it is definitely not a law in any state. Um, but if there some states or some schools, what they'll do is they'll provide you an agenda. So that's another thing that you can ask for. Okay. Can you provide me an agenda of what will be discussed? Can you provide me draft copies of just IEP goals? I've gotten that sometimes. Um, at the very least, what I like to see is IEP goals and present levels of performance. Um, I like to see what data has been collected over the last year of what that child has accomplished, like where they're at, because those present levels of performance is what, you know, fuels those IEP goals and identifies where we need to go next with those goals. Mm -hmm. So I like to see that. So at least I can absorb that information. And honestly, that's kind of one of the hardest things emotionally as a parent is to hear those, those struggles that your child's having, even though they're supposed to be written in a positive strength-based way. <laughs> you know, we're parents and we're not still stupid. So we can read between the lines, yeah. right? We see all the things that our kid can't do. And that's a hard part. So being able to absorb that, not in the moment at the meeting, I think is helpful for parents. That's some great advice there um, with it. And, and I know when we go into the questions that were submitted, we're going to hit on some of this again. Um, mm -hmm. But I, but I, I think that's great. Now you had mentioned to me about the IEP parent guide. And, mm -hmm. um, and so for those of you listening, Nicole's agreed to give us a free copy of an IEP parent guide, and yeah. we're going to link that in the show notes as well. So what's in the guide? What, what can they find there? So one of the biggest things that I heard from parents when I was asking, like, what kind of resources do you need was we don't know what to ask. Like parents know what the problem is, right? They see the problem, but how do they know what to ask for? So I put together the IEP parent guide and that is just um, a questionnaire of sorts or like a checklist 
of questions that you can ask when you're reviewing the IEP, but also ask your IEP team so that you better understand what's in the IEP, why it's in there, how services are being provided, um, and you know what, what your child might need. It just is a really simple tool for parents to better understand um, what decisions are being decided for their child. I, th I think it's great, and it's it's a good starting point too. Um, even for those who may be considering taking the IEP Parent Academy, to get an idea of, of how you're approaching things, to yeah. to kind of kind of see see the process there. Okay, mm -hmm. so you ready for some questions that we have? I have I've, I think there were ten or eleven on this list. <laughs> okay, sounds good. All right, so the first one um, was a, a pretty basic question here. What's the main difference between asking for an IEP over a five hundred four plan? So what I always tell parents, um, just basics, IEP is going to be, well, let me start with the 504. The 504 plan is going to be just accommodations. So 504 plan is good for somebody who does not have a skill deficit that knows how to utilize accommodations. Maybe they have a medical reason that they need some accommodations too. So kids who have food allergies or just have epilepsy um, without any kind of skill deficit or cognitive um, disability along with that. Um, a 504 plan is going to be good for that. An okay. IEP is good for students who have some need for specifically designed instruction. So you're going to get all those accommodations that you get in the 504 plan, but in addition to that, you're going to get related services, you're going to have IEP goals, there will be goal tracking and data collection. None of that happens in the 504. So what I see happen a lot of the time is that um, parents will go to the school, specifically I see this with ADHD, and they'll say, oh, we have an ADHD diagnosis and the school says, oh, it's ADHD, here's a 504 plan. And they don't do any kind of evaluations. They don't do any kind of testing. They just give you an IEP or a 504 plan with accommodations. And what I tell parents is that if you're even like a little bit on the fence, have the school do an evaluation for special education. You go to the school and you say, we have this new diagnosis. I would like to request a full comprehensive evaluation to determine what level of support is necessary or most appropriate for my child. It might be the 504 plan. That might be plenty for your kids. There are plenty of kids that are super successful with just accommodations. But a lot of the times, especially in those younger grades with ADHD, we see a lot of skill deficits in social skills or emotional regulation. Mm -hmm. And the 504 accommodations are wonderful, but if your child doesn't have the skill to regulate their emotions, then those accommodations are useless. So getting that full comprehensive evaluation to determine what level of support is most appropriate for them, it really helps everybody at the table because you can say, yes, we've ruled out special education or no, there really is a need for us to provide him this kind of instruction to get him to where he needs to go. You were talking about your son with executive functioning delays. Executive mm -hmm. functioning goes hand in hand with ADHD and is so often overlooked. That's another thing that, you know, would be very easy to provide accommodations for. But if they don't have the skill to keep an organized binder or they don't have the skill to complete a task and turn in assignments on time, 
They don't have the skill to plan and organize that thought process in their head to write a paper. Those accommodations are useless. Graphic yeah. organizer is completely useless for a kid who lacks the ability to plan and organize their thoughts to put them on paper. Yeah. So it's kind of making sure that you have whatever is appropriate for your child. Yeah. Okay. So then, um, and I, I thought this, the, this was actually a good question. What should a parent include in their parent statement on an IEP and how long should it be? So I always tell parents that it should be, you should shoot for less than a page, but I'm a talker. So mine is sometimes longer than that. And sometimes they're longer than that because there's just a lot of things going on or you have a lot of concerns. Um, I tell parents it doesn't have to be anything fancy. You don't even have to use complete sentences. Bullet pointing everything is fine. Okay. Um, but you want to include um, strengths for your child um, what, you know, what your concerns are, what your goals are for them. Um, and for goals, you want to inter uh, include short-term and long-term goals. Um, knowing, you know, what your expectations are even after high school um, is, or what your goals for them or what their goals are even after high school can help, like, um, we can set the groundwork, groundwork for that in IEP goals or in, you know, supports and accommodations that we're providing them. Um, so those short-term and long-term goals. But I also tell parents specifically um, for kids who are struggling with behavior or maybe dealing with, struggling with um, taking other per people's perspectives or rigid thinking, um, flexible thinking, those sort of things. Um, you typically know how to manage when things get hard, right? Like, you know how to respond to your child if they're having a hard time with their behavior or with their expectations or with their how they're um, managing, you know, a frustrating moment. So I tell parents that in those cases, including in there, what it looks like when they start to be triggered or prior to that what kind of body language they have, those kind of things are important, but also what do you do when things get hard? When things get hard for my kid, I give him space. I try not to talk to him too much. I don't ask him too many questions and I let him work through it. At school before they were putting him in a room, three people in the room, asking him lots of questions, offering him fidgets and calm down tools and using first then strategies and all of those are fine. But once he is in a meltdown, we are in the red zone and we are too far upstream to be able to, to work anything out in that moment. He can't rationalize with us. So you have that kind of information that the school might not have. And so those are important things to kind of share, but it doesn't have to be anything fancy. Making sure that you have your concerns written down and your goals written down is really the most important thing because once you put a concern in writing and you ask them to add it to the IEP, it becomes kind of like an agenda item for the IEP and they have okay. to discuss it at the meeting. This next one says, um, let's see. All right, so this one's saying, my child's writing goals are the same every time I have an IEP meeting. Are mm -hmm. there no specific times the skills are being worked on? Oh, and there are no time, no specific times the skills are being worked on. How will we ever reach the goals and why are they on the IEP if no one's working with them on the goals? Any idea so on all, that? All goals should have um, somebody working on them. So each goal will have like a facilitator. It's called different things in different IEPs, but they'll have somebody who's basically in charge of making sure that that goal is, is met. 
um, depending on what kind of writing goal it is, it could be the special education teacher, um, it might be the speech teacher, it might be the occupational therapist. Um, so first look and see who that person is. Then you're gonna head to your related service minutes and see how many minutes are written in your IEP. Um, and then ask, how are those minutes being served? Are they pushed into the classroom? Are they pulled out in a small group? Is it one-on-one? -on -one? Is it only consultation? Sometimes that happens. Um, those are all important questions to ask, but also the most important thing for you to know is that if we are working on an IEP goal for more than two years, we're doing something wrong. Uh, this, Either that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, data collection might not be accurate. Maybe that goal is poorly written, so we can't collect accurate data on it. Um, but we're doing something wrong. And it sounds like your child's not getting the, the support that they need in order to meet that goal. So if that's the case, um, you should put that in your parent concern letter. My child has had this goal for X amount of years. He has made no progress on it. Um, I'd like to make sure you know that we're addressing that. And addressing that could be increasing minutes. Um, it could be asking for compensatory minutes. Like you guys aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. He's not making progress at this point in time in with these services that you're providing to him. Um, I want to take an outside tutoring and I want you to reimburse me for it. Um, you know, there's a wide range of how we can address that problem. It's hard for me to give you specifics without right. knowing the goal, but there's so many things that, that we could do to support that. But the biggest thing for you to know is that if we're working on a goal for more than two years, we're doing something wrong. There's something that is preventing them from making progress because we write IEP goals that should be accomplished within one year. All right, so our next question is, how often should the school evaluate a student? And the note said their child is eight this year and the last formal eva evaluation was in 17. Um, and how often should a formal evaluation take place? So um, IDEA law, which is the federal law that governs special education, says that we should be reconsidering evaluation every three years. That's what um, I thought. It's not, it is a requirement in some states to do a full evaluation every year, but it isn't a requirement in all states. Okay. Sometimes what I see happen is that they will just do records reviews for like every, every triennial reevaluation and they're never really doing any new data. And sometimes that's okay, but if you think about how much your kid grows and changes from like mm -hmm. three to eight, eight to 12, we really should be doing new evaluations at least once or twice in that span of time. Um, and maybe we don't need full evaluations. Um, executive functioning is not really something that's going to be hugely impacting a kindergartner. Right. Executive functioning is something that we should really be talking about in third, fourth, and fifth grade. So maybe we just add on one kind of evaluation at a time. Um, your child in kindergarten might be doing fine keeping up with social skills. By third grade, when that like maturity kind of starts to kick in, that's where I usually see kids start to separate with those social emotional skills. Maybe we need to add more support at that time. So every three years is kind of rule of thumb. Um, however, you can do them more often than that. My son had a full evaluation last year, but because of everything that he's going through this year, we're in the middle yeah. of another evaluation this year because we have new concerns. You have new concerns, right? So, if there's new concerns, um, lack of progress on IEP goals, um, new things happening in the class, um, any new diagnosis, 
anything like that, um, there's you know reason to ask for another evaluation. I'm looking at the dates on this particular question. I know the child has autism, and so they're mm -hmm. eight now. They were three when they did the formal evaluation, and there's never been another one done. Yeah, there really so, should be. I mean, think about what a three-year-old needs as compared to that, an eight. That's what I'm thinking. So at eight, they're getting into those. That's probably third grade by now. Yep. Um, yep. At, second, at least second. Grade. Yeah. So they are looking at the social sides and all too. So all right. So I'm I'm hoping this parent's listening because they, yeah. they 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 I don't have names for who submitted these or or what state they're coming in from unless unless they mentioned it. Right. But um, but at least we can try to get it out. All right. So well, and also thinking about that age and then thinking about like different kinds of traits for um kids who are autistic. A three year old is probably not going to have a pragmatic language evaluation. Right. Um, but an eight year old probably would need a pragmatic language evaluation to determine um, how effective their social language is. So that might be something to consider True. too. Well, I'm even thinking just as far as, so, so you've got the language issues, you have um, just how are they dealing with, with behaviors? And yeah, problem solving, perspective thinking, yeah. a lot of that is something that probably wasn't as big of a deal when they were three that, you know, might be a bigger deal now. Right. When I think the parent would probably be more likely to agree with some of the decisions if they could see the documentation behind it. Okay, so we have another parent um, whose son has autism and they have a great relationship in their elementary school right now, but he's about to transition next year to middle school. So mm -hmm. he's concerned about leaving the security and the reinforcement they have right now and going to a new team. Um, mm -hmm. So he's wondering, should their expectations change as the child moves to the higher level into middle school and high school, and he said even college? Um, and is there any advice you can give to him as he's making this transition? So I guess, I guess I'm questioning, what does he mean by expectations? Does he mean his expectations of the school or their expectations of the student? Do you know? Well, his specific statement here is one of mine is starting middle school next year and I'm scared to death they won't honor what he needs or deal with him as gently as his elementary school is. Well, I mean, help? I think that's like a valid concern. Um, one of the best things I can tell parents when they're transitioning to a new school um, environment and whether that be like a preschool to elementary school or elementary to middle school, middle school to high school is um, have a meeting at the end of the school year with both teams. Um, oh, even good, if it's just a idea. couple people from the high school team that come, um, that way you're part of the conversation that the school is having about your child. Um, but it's usually called like a transition meeting. And you talk about like what, what the supports they're getting now would look like in that new environment. Um, some kids, you know, are getting regular breaks to the social work room or the OT room for sensory breaks and things like that that might not be um, something that they can do in the middle school. So they would need to accommodate that in another reasonable way or something that we think would work with them. I suspect from this that this child is also struggling with challenging behavior. Um, that's kind of what it sounds like when he says that, that you know, he hopes that they'll be gentle with him. Um, and I think that like this is where that parent input also comes in handy is talking about this is what it looks like when my child's struggling and here's the best way to respond to that. Um, keeping those lines of communication open and then also setting your expectations. Like my child is a child with a diagnosed disability. He does struggle with challenging behavior. When he has these struggles, here's how I would expect the school to respond. Is that reasonable? You know, and have that back and forth conversation. 
if we run into this situation, what would your response be to that? Um, you know, unfortunately, it is just a reality that schools typically go to that punitive consequence for challenging behavior before they go to any kind of restorative practice um, or positive reinforcement, even though they usually have some sort of positive behavior system in the school, that isn't usually the response to challenging behavior. So opening up that dialogue initially can be helpful for you to feel comfortable as a parent, but also to set expectations with the school. And you have to also remember that in the, um, middle school they're changing classes so there's like a lot more teachers okay. so i um i always recommend in younger grades like one of those getting to know you sheets but it's okay to use that in middle school too and it doesn't have to be anything like hokey and formal and this is what my kid's favorite color is you don't have to do that it can just be a quick email to the teacher and saying, I know you got a copy of the IEP. I know we had a meeting, but I just want to reiterate these things about my child. I want you to know, like for my, for my son, um, or I have a client also that is kind of in the same boat. I helped mom write this letter going into middle school last year. And we said, um, it might look like my child is ignoring you when they tell you to do something or when you when you give them a direction. He needs extra processing time. Um, sometimes things are overwhelming for him and he shuts down internally. If that happens, here's how I would like you to respond or here's the best way to respond. Um, and that actually did happen to the student in like around October. Um, he was struggling with a writing task, getting his thoughts down on paper. The teacher gave him some redirections and he just sat there silently with his hood up, um, you know, arms crossed. It totally looked like he was being disrespectful, right? But the teacher said to the mom, you gave me all of the tips to look for. So I knew that he was, you know, overwhelmed. So I, I wrote him a post-it and said, you know, don't worry about it now. Let's talk after class. And the student did. He came back into the class and said, you know, I, I don't understand this. And he was like all gruff and angry, but the teacher knew that like he wasn't trying to be disrespectful. He was overwhelmed in the moment. So it can be really helpful to just kind of lay out all of those concerns. Um, I, I think sometimes as parents, we're like afraid of being helicopter parents, especially as parents of kids with disabilities. Like we want them to be independent, right? We want everybody to see them as independent kids, but like, right. Sometimes we need people to see them the way that we see them. And you're the best way to communicate that. So that, that actually reminds me when my daughter was in high school, her freshman year in high school, her, um, team leader pulled her aside and told her that she'd like for her to be the one to start writing those notes instead of me. Cause I had mm -hmm. always done that a year ahead to whoever the teachers were my kids had through the years. And so instead of writing it, cause Emily couldn't, couldn't bring herself to do that or talking to the teacher, she made a video. And oh. she just, she just told, told all, all about who she was and what, what, what her strengths were, what, what she struggled with. And that stayed on YouTube for the next three years for each teacher to see as, as she went oh, on. But it, but from her yeah. point of view, it was, it was well done. It was, it, and it was really done. hard for her to do, but, but they, yeah. they, they sat and worked for several sessions and got her outline together. So she knew what she was going to do. And she, I think she was out in the backyard when she went through it, but, um, but it, it, it was a way for her to speak up and to say this, this, this is who I am. 
Well, and self-advocacy is a really important life skill. So, you know, teaching our kids to communicate what accommodations they need or mm -hmm. what they need is a really, really important life skill for them. Well, and this is having two in college right now, This the to this parent who was asking about the different transitions, I was glad that he included the transition to college because that's, that's a different one. Because mm -hmm. at that point, we as parents are no longer part of that conversation unless the child brings us in. Um, yep. My daughter no longer has me in her, her meeting. She did her freshman year. Um, mm -hmm. My son still, he'll kind of um, powwow with me ahead of time. And then he sends me a copy of the notes afterwards. So mm -hmm. he wants them to be to be aware of what's happening and give input if I see anything. But he's doing the meetings himself now too. Um, but yeah. those those are big steps because they're, they're going to go on from college to a workplace yeah. And and mom can't go with them to work yeah, <laughs> and ex right? explain, you know. Yeah. So so it, it is a learning process, and it, and and this is a fun age now to see that all those years of of me going in and fighting and fighting, they're now learning to gently, hopefully, is how they're doing it, right. <laughs> to, to advocate for themselves. Absolutely. Um, and and they they both are learning this year too that sometimes they should have advocated when they didn't and they're they're facing the fallout and grades from that. So um, yeah, so it's, it's all a learning process. So um, so this one says if you think your child needs more support, what evidence evidence do you need to bring, and do you need to have a paid advocate with you to to go into that meeting? So it just depends on what you're asking for. If you are asking for anything, you should be bringing data to support that. Um, data is king in special education, and if you do not have data, we do not make decisions based off, or we should not be making decisions based off of subjective observation or opinion. So just you feeling like your child needs something is probably not going to be enough for the team to like listen to you, even if your feeling's right. So showing up with data is really important. So a lot of times parents will ask me, where do I get that data from? So um, data collection can be, um, uh, you can get that from report cards um, some, and not just like grades on the report card, but it can also be um, teacher notes are really important sometimes. Um, classroom assessments like iReady or MAP scores, any kind of thing that the school is doing, that can be important. Um, you can look for patterns too. So like, you know, in third grade, they made this much progress, but then they had a regression at the end of the year and they, you know, slowed down in their percentage growth or whatever that is. Um, and that's happening again now in third grade. So like you see a pattern of, yes, they make a little bit of progress, but then they slow down and they don't make sufficient progress. So look for those kind of patterns. Okay. Um, daily behavior sheets are great. Daily communication logs are great. Teacher emails, those are great. Remember, we've talked a lot about like documenting your conversations with the school back in an email to them. So like those kind of things are great ways to collect data. Um, IEP meeting notes. Um, there's so many different ways that you can collect data. Um, I had somebody comment on um, one of my TikToks earlier talking about school refusal. And that's like a really hard one because the school's not at home, right? But a lot of the times those school refusals are surrounding something that's happening at school. So that's an opportunity for you to collect data on um, what was happening the day before, um, what was happening the morning of, what the expectations are the day before or the day of, those sort of things to see if there's some sort of pattern and communicating that back to school so that they know. Right. But parents have ways of collecting data. You know, how long is homework time taking? Um, what kind of notes are they getting in their homework? Um, my six-year-old recently came home with uh, multiple weeks of 
um, empty packets of paper that are all marked minus five on them. And that prompted me to say like, hey, like, is she not participating in class? Um, because she's not able to read yet. So she can't read what's on the paper. And so now we're having another meeting to discuss adding a para support for her because she's sitting there unable to participate. But like, yeah. had I not paid attention to what was, you know, on the paper or asked that question, um, that might not have happened because nobody else at school was, was at, worried about that like I was. So, right. Good, good, good advice there. All right. Yeah. So um, I know we just have a few more minutes here, but we have to do our speed round because this is part of all of ours. And um, the speed round, if you haven't seen it on the others or for those that are listening in for the first time, it's a series of 10 short questions. Three are open-ended and seven are either or questions. All right. So the first questions, we have three open-ended. What is your favorite color? Um, pink or blue. I can't decide. Okay. <laughs> you're the, fir you're the fir first one with, 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 with two answers there. <laughs> I like them both. What was the last book that you read? Um, I'm currently still reading um, My Brain is Not Broken, which is a book about um, being an adult with ADHD. It's it's pretty good. The first chapter alone is like super validating. So it's I really have to one. check that one out. <laughs> yeah, it's and a good one. What is your favorite holiday? Um, it's so hard. Um, I really love Christmas. I think that's like a, a general question for everybody. But I also really love Halloween. Um, my kids oh. have always really been well mason not so much mason's not a big costume guy but um it's halloween's always a time where like my extended family comes and we all do trick-or-treating together so that's always really fun oh fun so, so do you want to choose one of those two or you don't leave them both on i mean i like both yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a little bit of an outlier with the halloween um my most yeah. unusual one so far was memorial day <laughs> so, oh okay so mo most of the others have been thanksgiving and christmas i think yeah all right, so these are either or. They'll either be single words or phrases. Um, choose one or the other. So cake okay. or ice cream? Um, cake. Batman or Superman? Mm, Batman. Ocean or mountains? Ocean, all day. Winter or summer? Summer, never winter. <laughs> uh, ocean and summer always go together, and winter and mountains always go together. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> um, would you rather watch a movie or read a book? Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I could choose. I really, really love books, but also I'm pretty, I don't know. I'm going to say books. I'm going to go books. I had to go with books as well, but I rarely have time to read anymore. It's like, but I love well, reading. I, so I do Audible. I listen to books okay. on Audible all the time because I can listen to when I'm cleaning or when I'm driving the kids around. So I do Audible. Right. I'm, I'm, I may have to start doing that because I, they're, they're, I'm getting a stack of books that I want to read now and I need to get through yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. I don't have time to sit and read because I have too many kids, but right. Audible is something I can do. <laughs> all right. Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? Um, honestly, neither. Neither. Just, yeah, no, I'm not into those. And I like, um, like that kind of genre, but those just never appealed to me. So. Okay. And then Twitter or Instagram? Instagram. Okay. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Um, and I know, I know our parents are going to really get a lot out of this. If they have questions, um, we have your, your website, um, your Instagram, we'll put in your TikTok. What else are we putting in for you for them to contact you through? Um, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. That's kind of where I hang out. But also okay. I give you my email and stuff like that. So. Okay. So we'll um, so but... have that on there. And if anyone, if they, they, they can always con contact you through us as well because we can forward it on to them. 
and yeah. um, and parents that are listening, um, check out the the IEP Parent Academy. It sounds like a great opportunity for you to be able to strengthen your own skills and to be able to advocate better for your children. So yeah, thank IEP you, Nicole. Parent Academy is a great place. And then also, um, like I work I work nationwide, so I oh, you attend do. meetings with parents in any state. So. Um, that's always an option too, should you have to hire an advocate. But my Excellent. goal with IEP Parent Academy is that people can do that on their own. Parents right. can do it on their own. So. I, I had not realized that that you were outside of Illinois as well. So, so yeah, fantastic. So, so, mm -hmm. so we will, um, we will also put your contact in our resources database under Illinois, but keep in mind parents that it, you, you'll find it there, but you don't have to just be in Illinois to be able to use her services that way. Yep. Well, I work everywhere. Well, thank you very much. I've, I've enjoyed talking to you and, and getting some, some great information. I wish I had had years ago, but, uh, yes, but if, absolutely. if, if we're able to pass it on to somebody else, even better, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. That was some great information from Nicole. We really appreciate her taking the time to answer some of our listeners' questions about advocating for their children. Next week, we'll be talking with Justin Husek about how autism has impacted his life and how he mentors others who have autism through his business, ASD With Me. You've been listening to the Water Prairie Chronicles. Any resources mentioned during this episode will be posted in the description. If you're interested in joining us as a guest, contact us through the links in the description below. Be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. We appreciate your support as we build this resource. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week for a new episode.